Jake, you're saying you have a story about when you nearly experienced the apocalypse. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. It's it's we called the snow apocalypse. <laughs> um, right now where I'm recording, it's it's negative twenty two degrees outside, so Yuck. it was not this cold, but there was a lot more snow. So we had a big party. I, I lived in a uh, basically an old frat house, and we had a ton of people over for someone's birthday party, and it was on a Sunday night. Um, I don't know why. There's school the next day. Um, but it said there's going to be a lot of snow that night on the forecast. And I'm not from Kentucky where I'm at right now. Um, I'm not originally from here. And so I trusted them and they said, oh, no, they always overestimate. It's just going to be a light dusting. Um, it turns out it was not a light dusting. Um, and we opened the door at like probably 9 p.m. And there's like two feet of snow. Oh, no. And so people like at this point can't get out. And it just keeps coming. And so it, it snows all night. And so people are like are stranded. There's probably about 15 people stranded in my house. Um, it just could not leave. <laughs> and so I had to essentially start uh, operating a hotel. Um, so I made pancakes and like all my roommates were like, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. So school was closed for that entire week. Um, it was that bad. And people were stranded there for about three days before they could start like trudging through and digging their cars out and stuff. Um, but it was like incredible. Like, like we don't have where I'm at, we didn't have the infrastructure for that much snow, like not a lot of snow plows or anything, but man, it was, it was crazy. But like day three or four, people were getting stir crazy and people <laughs> were getting catty with each other and fighting. And it was like, Thinking of that, how how bad would that have been if it just didn't stop snowing? Oh, geez. Like we were just stranded in there for like a month. Like how that would what, – what that would have looked like. It would have been Lord of the Flies. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but so that's probably the closest I've gotten. It, really, in the modern world, it's pretty hard to get close to the post-apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the closest I've gotten to being in an apocalypse that I can think of is I was helping out at a youth event and we were playing a game called Zombie Tag. I think <laughs> Will might have been there for that, but I just remember it was very dramatic how it was uh, explained because they, we had all of the rules explained up front. Essentially, it's tag. If you get tagged, you're a zombie and you go and you get like zombie makeup put on you and it's really fun and exciting. And the way they had the first zombie come in as they just barged through the doors in the back <gasps> oh, and yeah. everyone just screamed and ran out the front and dude i arranged this yeah yes. i remember that was kale the he, he's oh, huge yeah. he's a bodybuilder he's like a massive dude in zombie <laughs> makeup just like running at everyone i think some of the and kids peed just... their pants <laughs> <laughs> yes and i just remember there was everyone had gathered and they they had they went downstairs and they had them all go into this long hallway. And then at the very end of the hallway, the zombie showed up and everyone was trampling over each other, trying to get out of this like small, narrow hallway. It's like 200 people. And it, it was, oh, it was very apocalyptic feeling and hilarious and terrifying. Wow. That's so fun. <laughs> It's it's amazing how quickly you can simulate an apocalypse like in a, a field game with a bunch of teenagers, um, but really how fast society breaks down in oh, the yeah. presence of a, a clear and present danger. Yeah, 
It really is. It's it's it blows my mind that we got to where we are as a species <laughs> at, at like how quickly we can be at each other's throats. Um, just yeah, it's it can all collapse very quickly. Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 38, Post-Apocalyptic Settings. So tell me, Jake, what is the deal with the post-apocalyptic world, and why do we like it so much? Um. Well, so post-apocalyptic, like as as a genre, the post-apocalyptic genre um, kind of emerged from sci-fi um, or uh, what is it, speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, everyone, there's, since the, the dawn of time, humans have been worried about the end of the world. Um, and so this is kind of the speculative fiction of what happens after the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Like what happens when a catastrophic event um, or like, you know, a cataclysm of just a horrible event that ends civilization, um, not completely, but as we know it. Um, so, so what happens to the few stragglers that survive? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that genre has become increasingly popular as people are just kind of fascinated with the end of the world and, and post-apocalyptic settings. Um, and it's really grown to infect kind of every form of fiction, um, you know, books, comic books, television, video games, and um, role-playing games as well. Yeah. I think it's interesting because for me, it is really about living the fantasy of tribalism where (laughs) we're going back to this ancient like roots of society everything is collapsed and we're rebuilding with these small tribes of people who are interacting and dealing with each other that's what i see when i see post-apocalyptic where you have these stories that emerge from people who are acting in their most native forms most of the time or i don't want to say native but primal or animalistic forms yeah and i think that's that is exactly right it really is it's tribalism it's like living in the ancient era but still having technology Mm -hmm. because everyone wants to experience tribalism i mean because like we're we're a primate species that's kind of geared towards that it's like within our nature um and so we kind of crave that in some capacity but also we don't want the actual tribal experience because most of us would just die of dysentery or be killed by a predator yeah so it's like it's like having the kind of cool tribal parts or not cool but like the drama dark, of the tribal inherent parts. drama of yeah. the tribal with the technology um or you know with the knowledge that we have from society I, really interesting i think there is a kind of grass is greener fantasy about this because you look at your life oh, today yeah. and you're like oh i'm stuck in an office i wish i was out hunting um you know t- building things out of timber for my family uh just you kind of yearn for the simpler life and so we like to think about the post-apocalypse um because we imagine ourselves succeeding in it and thriving in that environment uh, when <laughs> if you really want to experience that just go to a third world country and see what real poverty looks like and see what it looks like when people don't have resources and when you resort to tribalism and it's it's not fun and it's not entertaining but the the version of this genre is sort of like all of the most interesting bits without any of or at least without most of the awful stuff just like yeah. any fantasy yeah I, and i think that's the yeah, it is the whole genre of fantasy, you know, like um, the fantasy genre does not include the horrific, 
gross smells of the medieval era, mm-hmm. right? The same way, like, that most po- post-apocalyptic fiction doesn't include just the horrific nature of it. Some some do, but when you think about kind of, like, the the fantasy of, or it's, it's almost, yeah, like, uh, post-apocalyptic fantasy, it's a little different. It's not, like, super nihilistic and dreary and... Terrible. No, in a way, it's almost optimistic about the future based on a terrible event. And I think that's what's fun. Because if you look at, um, we'll talk about a lot of these later in the show, Fallout is a very funny and fun take on that idea where you have goofy technology and weird characters mm-hmm. and um, really imaginative environments, like um, a city built inside a baseball diamond. That's so cool. Yeah. 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 I really like that, how it adapts to the world, or. Er, how the world before informs the, the world after mm-hmm. um, and the aftermath of the apocalypse. I think with the um, with this genre, it, it's interesting because when you're when you're creating a world that's post-apocalyptic, you have to define the world, but also define the previous world because that informs so much of what the post-apocalyptic version of that world will be. Um, you know, because if the world ended, you know, maybe an, if an asteroid struck during the medieval era of of our like um of earth uh that would look way different than if it struck you know if there was a nuclear war tomorrow yeah um and so you really have to almost do double world building to determine what the world was like before and then how the world adapted after yeah there is so most most of the time post-apocalyptic as the genre as i was referring to earlier is speculative fiction of like what would it be like if the world ended or what would it be like if if a horrible event kind of destroyed an entire civilization well looking at history um that has happened several times um when you look the main one that kind of uh, pops out to western civilization is the fall of rome Mm. um, when rome splits into the western and eastern roman empire um, and the western empire is just like it just collapses Mm -hmm. and so there's this weird period of time where there's basically a single generation that experiences, um, you know, Roman centurions walking through their town. They experience aqueducts being constructed, big theaters being constructed. Like they're really this these technological and cultural advancements. And then within a generation, it's gone. People forget recipes of how to make stuff. They forget um, how to do certain things that, you know, the Roman officials were telling them how to. And so that that really was like in that era a post apocalyptic environment right like you have all these technological things like massive aqueducts that are just broken and no one knows how to repair them anymore mm. um uh another example is the uh the black plague mm. uh in yeah. in europe that just ravaged the environment and just totally wiped out so much of of the population of many parts of europe um and living in the aftermath of that is is post-apocalyptic right there are piles of corpses and essentially a genocide done by nature um which yeah and and the rebuilding after that is is inherently post-apocalyptic as well and so all of this stuff is already almost baked in to dungeons and dragons because of its initial like medieval setting Mm -hmm. so the medieval setting has like you know kind of the backdrop of like the fall of rome the collapse of that civilization uh the you know, maybe the Black Plague, but regardless, all this stuff, this post-apocalyptic stuff is baked into Dungeons and Dragons itself. And that's why there's so many references to 
the spell plague or the horrible cataclysm that ended this ancient civilization. Like there are dead civilizations all throughout almost every form of D&D. And that's because it's baked in because of the initial like Middle Ages setting that D&D started in. I think the Forgotten Realms is actually called that because there's so much history that the current game is built on that they've forgotten most of it. And so yeah. this gives you a reason to have ancient ruins and dungeons and uh, artifacts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't... Yeah, I think it's really cool. I don't know if D&D is, or at least Forgotten Realms, is necessarily post-apocalyptic as much as just, uh, I guess you'd call it deep history, like forgotten history. Yeah, like a cycle. Because it's almost like, yeah. when yeah, the closer you are to that cataclysm, the more post-apocalyptic something becomes. Yeah. And so like you're saying, that first generation of those people who are watching aqueducts fall or watching barbarians roll into their town and just like take everything... Um, mm-hmm. they are, I, I guess hmm, the genre changes depending on where you put the story relative to the cataclysm. Yes, definitely. If you put it closer, um, it, it does change. There's a trans transition period. Um, especially with, uh, think like, you know, the walking dead or like zombie fiction, um, in the months after, um, you can still drive around in cars. Mm-hmm. You can get in a jet plane. You can get like all of this stuff still works. Yeah. Um, but you know, years after there's no more oil refineries, all the gas goes bad and then it starts, it it is a process. Um, so that's another thing to consider with post-apocalyptic settings is how long ago was the apocalypse? Cause that informs a lot as well. Right. Cause in zombie fiction, usually they start off slightly before the apocalypse and then you walk through that. Um, but Mm -hmm. as we're saying, the further you get away, um, you get something like the last of us. Or even farther, like a few hundred or even a thousand years later, you get something like um, Horizon Zero Dawn, which is like yeah. post-post-apocalypse. Yeah. When they, they yes. have no idea what the previous world was like. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting. And, and that's almost like, um, it can almost sometimes be cyclical too. Like um, a lot of fantasy tropes have this where like the civilization grows 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 destroys itself and then whatever survivors start back at square one mm-hmm. and yeah. then it just re- um yeah and it goes in I, a circle uh david and i love to play a game called civilization uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. and there's a mod for that game where whenever a certain amount of nuclear weapons are used the game resets to the ancient era oh that's so cool be- yeah and so it's like that that's that's another example of sometimes how post-apocalyptic uh, settings are used to, to show kind of the cyclical nature of almost Darwinism mm-hmm. of some things survive, yeah. they rebuild, they naturally die or destroy themselves, and it just keeps keeps going. So why would we want to run our games in a post-apocalyptic setting like this? Because it sounds pretty dreary. Um, it sounds <laughs> like the the type of fiction that presents this usually has some sort of message or agenda. I know science fiction is famous for presenting an idea in a in a fashion that makes it um, more obvious to think about. Like we saw this in um, Alas Babylon or um, a lot of literature fiction. Mm-hmm. So I think that post-apocalyptic games have a lot to offer. So one of the things that immediately comes to mind is the the heightened drama because you're dealing more with survival and less there's there's less resources naturally to go around so you're going to be fighting over a small amount of resources that are going to be inherently helping people survive in this wasteland so whereas normally you'd be fighting over a dragon who's hoarding gold 
which that's nice and you can buy nice things with it, but it's not necessarily important to your survival. Whereas if you need water or food or even just gasoline to get transported somewhere, those are going to be immediately dependent and it, and it gives you that heightened sense of danger, which you might not normally have in other games and you might want to have that and feel that way when you're playing in a more survival based game. So it, I think you hit on something really good here, David, um, about resource scarcity during a post-apocalyptic game. And I think that's, you're right, it's a certain style or format where it's almost like you would expect fewer social encounters and maybe more, yeah. like, I th I'm thinking of The Last of Us, right, where you have just one, really two characters interacting, the players interacting with uh, Ellie the whole time. And when you get, um, what, like, you're building medicine and weapons and traps and things, and every decision matters a lot more. And now I don't think that all post-apocalyptic games need to be survival games, but I think they lend themselves to that. Yeah, and I think that when you do have those social encounters, they are significantly more impactful because whether you decide to kill someone or not in that in those types of games can have more significant consequences because it could be someone who could actually help you or it could be someone who stabs you in the back and that means a lot so you have these encounters which are more impactful than you know talking to a barkeeper mm -hmm. for me i think why i'm attracted to it specifically for tabletop um well i guess i'm attracted to it in like a literature to storytelling sense because exactly like you guys said um it's one of my favorite quotes that's often attributed to Joseph Stalin is one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Um, and once you have like a massive world or maybe you're in a massive city with, you know, a million people in it, there's just so many possible NPCs and it, it's almost overwhelming. Um, and, and so if you want to make your world smaller by like literally just having less people in it, <laughs> An apocalypse is a good way to uh, to make the, make each character matter more just because they're more scarce. Um, but like for me, post-apocalyptic games, if there's less civilization, there's tends to be more adventure. So there's less social encounters naturally. There's going to be more um, crazy combat encounters with you know mutated uh, versions of things in the monster manual. Um, and also, I like just having the the darker tone. Um, you know, when you have a post-apocalyptic setting, it naturally comes with this kind of mourning of the previous world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really like that. So if I if I want to do a lot of times like a one shot or something like this, um, I recently did last year a, uh, I believe it was like six or seven sessions. Um, so a little, a small little campaign that was post-apocalyptic. <laughs> you say um, six or seven is small for Jake and that would be longer than <laughs> most of my campaigns in total. <laughs> <laughs> little baby sesh uh it, it was um I, we just wanted to have something that was a little more combat heavy a little darker um uh, that i also wanted to kind of have a clever time travel tie into the dungeon of the bad page um and so yeah that's why i did it is because it has that darker tone and kind of the more action adventure than like maybe a city crawl because hmm. civilization can sometimes bog you down um I've seen this in a lot of uh, D and D streamers. You know, w once they go to a city, there's just so much to do that the narrative almost stops in a way um, because they just like there's like like a real city. There's just so much to do that there's not really a a goal anymore. You kind of lose um, direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but with like a post apocalyptic um, 
you know, even if there's no MacGuffin or something, like there, there's always kind of a clear and present danger, even if that is just survive. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a big fan of this type of... So it's, as you said, Jake, it's a small-scale world socially because there's fewer people to interact with, but uh-huh. the scale of the world is actually bigger because you can't travel very yes. fast unless you have gasoline mm-hmm. or magic or something. Um, I, I'm a fan of what is called a points of light campaign world. And that is that civilization is on the decline and the wild world, the wilderness, is increasing. And this is, um, I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, I believe Mike Merles runs his game like this. When they designed 4th edition, this was the default setting of Forgotten Realms. They kind of, they did what's called the Spell Plague, which was their apocalypse. They they broke the world and then brought it back in this very dark and scary format, which I'm such a fan of, and we never got a campaign source book describing exactly what that meant before the fourth edition was canned. Um, but I'm just very uh, attracted to this. Yeah, I, I really like that. Cause when you look at our world, um, like, you know, with deforestation and climate change and everything, it's like the, um, like civilization is winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of the exact opposite of that. Like mm-hmm. the wilderness is winning. Like, and like, like, what is it like in that kind of world? And that, yeah, that, that is super, that is super interesting. Yeah, like it would be interesting to see like what would happen if creatures could more easily adapt to survive in a world like ours. Like if tigers were like could shoot lasers out of their eyes or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he said what we're all thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something I think about every day. <laughs> Another thing about post-apocalyptic settings is um, it's kind of a way to tweak the dial on what kind of game you want. Um, so you can, you know, obviously if you want the tone to be a little darker, you can make it post-apocalyptic. But other dials you can pull is like, do you want there to be less technology or less gold or uh, less magic items? This is a way to do so. Um, you could even do it like less magic, like less magic users. Maybe magic users cause the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can really almost in this way kind of begin to almost ban classes to be, okay, you cannot be a magic user. Um, in, in the post-apocalyptic game that I ran, um, I called it uh, Heaven's Fall. And basically all the gods died. And so I said, you literally cannot use uh, magic that comes from a divine deity hmm. um, because they are, they're dead. They're gone. Um, and so that that limited my players' choices of classes um, and made them more martial in nature, having less healers, stuff like that. So po- if you're thinking about a post-apocalyptic game, um, do so because there's a lot of there's a lot of dials to turn um, if you want to kind of make certain things scarce. It's funny because it sounds like you accidentally or maybe coincidentally invented the Dark Sun D and D setting. Because, oh, no, yeah. I, I knew it was similar. Okay, because in yeah. that game, the gods are dead, and mm-hmm. magic is mm-hmm. the reason for the apocalypse. They scorched the earth. It's called scorched Yeah, I feel earth. like by now, those are those are pretty common tropes. Um, but but I like the idea of, you know, because we talk about the difference between religion in D&D and religion in our world, mm-hmm. um, and how if you have a world where, like, there are literally demigods walking the earth, and prayers are literally answered on the dot, um, stuff like that, when that's gone... Oh my gosh, that would be the biggest tragedy ever. Um, I think there is a poem or something. It's like the, the biggest tragedy wouldn't be God not existing. It would be God existing and then dying. Oh, wow. 
Um, and it's like, yeah, like it's really adds on to the heap of tragedy that's associated with post-apocalyptic settings. It seems like the darkness of the tone is inescapable in this type of game. Yeah, yeah, really it is. Yeah. Let's talk about some examples from fiction and see what we can pull out of them and also put them on that, that timeline, the scale of how close they are to the apocalypse or how far away. This one's for Jake. Uh, I've seen the movie. I kind of wish I hadn't. It's called The Road. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. What is The Road, Jake? Uh, so The Road is a post-apocalyptic uh, novel by Cormac McCarthy that was made into a great movie with Viggo Mortensen um, that is basically about this guy uh, trying to basically travel down. I think it's like an abandoned interstate, right? Or like just a debris of an interstate mm-hmm. heading south um, with his son. Um, and it's very... Like we talked about earlier, small. So like there's there's not that many characters. It's very bleak and dreadful. And it is oh, it is nihilistic as all get out. It is it's it's really dark. He examines post apocalyptic in the most nihilistic way possible. What was that movie we saw, Jake, that I said was like Oh <laughs> yes, the rover. The rover. That Isn't that post apocalyptic yeah. as well? Yes. So that, that, that is That was just set in Australia. That's just what it's like in Australia. <laughs> oh. I mean Australia <laughs> no, so is that's, basically that's in a similar way. Post apocalyptic. I think that the the uh, the rover was explained as um Mad Max before it gets crazy. You mean Mad so Max it, before it gets fun. Oh. <laughs> well yeah, so it's closer to the to the apocalypse when it's yeah kind of everything's still in free fall mm-hmm. fresh um yeah yeah uh, i i wouldn't personally recommend the road or the rover but jake would <laughs> it depends on how much you want to kind of dive into um something that's dark how much do you like things that are dark and kind of nihilistic yeah uh speaking of dark and not nihilistic i'm going to suggest adventure time this is a show Ooh. that at first looks like any other stupid cartoon kid show but the more you watch it the more you realize there's a lot of things that are off and um the content matter is much more adult and serious and bleak maybe not all the way to nihilism but definitely bleak so um yeah i didn't realize this when i <sighs> saw it i know like i haven't seen it all the way through but i didn't know no because i kept on recommending it to you because i knew you would pick up on that but then it is kind of hard to buy into just it's very <laughs> especially early on in the show it was very silly and um, childish but it's great yeah. it is great so uh, the <laughs> idea is that the world was destroyed by nuclear bombs it's like hundreds of years before as far as i can tell i haven't seen the whole entire show yet but um, you discover this and the entire world is really these mutated versions of things. Like even candy is brought to life and it's, uh, you see characters and, um, they have magic, which in general seems more like very advanced technology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they continue showing parts of the world and what they're doing now. And you find like old factories that are generating robots and just super imaginative, strange yeah. and often whimsical ideas. It's yeah. Recommended adventure time. All right, so one of the other more iconic titles that you might come across that is post-apocalyptic is Fallout, where mm. the world has been succumbed to nuclear war, and <laughs> you are a wanderer in the wasteland trying to make your way, and it's a game, so if you didn't know that, where you are essentially all on your own, but there's stories that follow you, and there's interesting characters, robots, 
people, uh, mutants. It's important to note that Fallout has an alternate um, timeline of history where America yes. was in the 50s, mm-hmm. but the, the 50s kind of never stopped being the 50s. And Well, because they, they never invented the transistor. That's so right. So they, they, they could never make um, technology smaller. <laughs> and so that kind of slowed down all like advancement. Right. And so, but technology continued developing, like I think in two till 2077 is when the bombs fall. Um, so you have like this advanced technology that has this form factor of this 1950s, like yes. uh-huh. uh, aesthetic. Yeah. Really interesting. And then of course, you yeah, blow it all I, up. I, <laughs> I, I really like fallout, fallout, you know, just amazing game series. Um, but I really like the, uh, the, how the kind of the idea of American, exceptionalism or like the from the 1950s like american dream just bleeds into um and informs so much of the post-apocalyptic version of it yeah um i think it's a prime example of how the culture of the previous world still really affects the world after like there's so many little things that survive i mean in fallout it's in the form of audio tapes and computer files and uh, maybe big billboards um, you know, robot uh, programmed personalities, um, stuff like that. But it, it really is a, a textbook example of how what the world was like when it is destroyed really, really informs what, what it'll be like after. A lot survives. Yeah. Um, Fallout is one of my favorite games, especially Fallout New Vegas, which is just tremendous. It's a classic. Yeah. I want to talk also about Mad Max. We mentioned this before. Oh, yeah. Um, This is, I guess, for the people who might not know, this is more like Borderlands, but also it's just set in modern-day Australia with no changes. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's what you would almost call like diesel punk. Yes. Instead of steampunk, where it's around cars and... Just madness. Uh, Absolute madness. It's... um, the very extreme take on the apocalypse, but it's almost like gleeful in its presentation. Yes. It has this um, almost 80s hairband aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Where people are wearing leather and it almost has this like BDSM <laughs> style of just like spikes and chains. And it really almost has this theatrical appearance yeah. to it, mm-hmm. um, which is it's really fun. It's a way to uh, really like. This this shows that the apocalypse doesn't have to be hyper realistic like the road. No. Um, th- while this isn't really fantasy elements, it's like elements of theatrical fun glam madness that that I really like that flavor. Yeah, and if I'm gonna run a post apocalyptic game, it's probably gonna borrow more from Mad Max and Adventure Time than from a more serious The Road or um, any of the other things we talk about. Yeah. Hmm. When I'm when I'm thinking about the the tone of my post apocalyptic campaign that I did, I think it would be most. I probably have to ask my players, but in my opinion, it'd probably be close to the Book of Eli, um, hmm. where it kind of has this twinge of hopefulness in it. Um, but uh, yeah, I would call it what, a balanced apocalypse. Like it's it's really dark and really gritty, but there still is kind of this this main storyline that this ultimate goal that. Um, that the characters are trying to achieve. Um, and there's more black and white morality. Um, and yeah, I, I really love the book of Eli, but I, I tried to go for that tone where it's not just overt pessimism, um, but it's not silly, quirky fantasy sci-fi either. It's kind of this like balanced approach where you can get the best of both worlds. Yeah. I found the book of Eli to be fairly realistic in his presentation. If from what I'm recalling um, where it's, it's not overly, 
dark or light, it's kind of right in the middle of, oh, this is a reasonable expectation of the state of the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, all right, uh, it's rewind time. Let's talk about I Am Legend. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's rewind time. So have you guys read the book? Uh, that I Am Legend is based no, off of? No, I've always wanted to. I've mm-hmm. heard it's great. So I'm sure you know the uh, – it's not really a twist. It's like the entirety of the book. Um, the uh, bad guys that are like the zombies in the movie um, are described as – I think as vampires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're more like um, sentient. And they, yeah. Yes, and they are sentient. And that was kind of, that was kind of the reveal, I think. Or they, they – in the early drafts of the script, they, that was going to be the reveal – um, that like, oh, these things were sentient the whole time and you just thought they were dumb zombies. Um, but this this brings up a really interesting question about uh, the apocalypse causing a split in a species hmm. or the apocalypse creating a new species, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really interesting, like introducing a new um, species from some, you know, catastrophic event um, that, that maybe has like a you know, a mutation or something. It's just like inherently part of them, but they are different. They are changed from the apocalypse itself. Right. And I think we see this in a lot of these, maybe not necessarily species that are entirely new, um, but it's fun to think of radiation mutating or um, magic yes. changing something or creating something new. Um, you yes. can do the same thing with like an alien invasion and body snatchers. And- yeah. Yes. I, I used fey magic as a form of radiation, mm. um, which was really, really cool. Like you see a uh, a hill giant walking through the desert, but he has like all these glowing mushrooms like like growing off of the back, oh, uh, off of his back and like down his thigh. And it's like, oh, like it's really uh, – you can tell this thing is different. You know, maybe yeah. it has like a bulbous eye and it's clearly deformed – in a way that like the radiation has, has enhanced its abilities. Um, and so that's, that, oh, that was probably my favorite part of, of doing the post-apocalyptic campaign was going through the monster manual and being like, Ooh, how can I mutate this monster? Or like what? Oh, a two headed manticore. That'll do. Oh like, no. <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about tone anchors in a while, but I think that changing your world, even things that are familiar into corrupted versions of themselves is such a fun way to put the players in that world Mm -hmm. and that mindset to be like oh this was a goblin but now it's three goblins melted together who are just some awful um horrifying visage love or even going from a bear to an owl bear like right if you had a low yeah that's an example of that yeah and i think that post-apocalyptic games can almost work better as a second campaign where you are familiar with this world that you've been in and then something shifts mm-hmm. and maybe your campaign takes place, you know, a few hundred years later where society has since collapsed or you're in a campaign and the world begins to collapse or something like that mm-hmm. where you have this big tone shift. Like things that used to be familiar are no longer the same. I've talked about this before. There's a book series. This is some appendix in stuff. Uh, these are the stories that the original D&D games were based on or inspired by. And it's called the Dying Earth Trilogy or the Dying Earth series. It's um, a collection of short stories and then a few full novels by a guy named Jack Vance who wrote them while he was in World War II, uh, funny, funnily enough. Huh. Um, but this is just the idea of that very far future 
Um, we, we passed the modern age, passed that sci-fi magic, and now we're back around into being tribes with advanced technology. Um, the difference there is that it's so far in the future the Earth has redshifted, and everybody knows at any second the sun can go supernova. And so you see, oh. like, here's the attitude of a culture of people who expect to die anytime. Oh, yeah. that is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Man, that book is still on my list since you've recommend that i need to get around to how it. come we don't have uh, the left behind series on this <laughs> <laughs> actually you could um we're going to give an honorable mention to the left behind series especially the one starring nicholas cage um that follow the events of the rapture where you have um and, and using this in D, everyone from a certain people group or certain belief system is removed from the planet and like what kind of chaos that causes yeah i, I think um the uh I think that especially even just looking at like kind of the, the Christian mythos of uh, Revelation mm-hmm. um, informs a ton of uh, how we how we view post-apocalyptic um, stuff in, in the Western world mm-hmm. um, because that informed a lot of the Middle Ages, which which then informed um, Dungeons and Dragons. So so I think, uh, yeah, the, the Christian idea of uh, Armageddon. Um, is is very much apparent in in D anD D, and then I'd also building off that, I need to mention Ragnarok, the Viking yes. belief system that the gods will destroy the world, and so therefore we we need to kill the gods. Yeah, I think yes. I think that would be that could be an interesting idea where the gods are trying to destroy the world, or the gods caused the apocalypse, and they're just because they were unhappy with mankind, hmm. and they're almost punishing society. Like that could be yeah. another fun twist on the apocalypse. That's it. Maybe you're maybe you're a cleric, and like one of your gods asks uh, to for you to build like a big boat, and you're like, "What?" And they're like, "He's gonna flood it." <laughs> oh my it's gosh! Like, <laughs> and then all these animals show up. And <laughs> Probably at least two of each kind. Um, no, so. Um, I imagine if you have a campaign where you you need to go kill gods or like stop them from killing the world, that's the kind of campaign that starts at level twenty. Like level twenty is a I've heard this from uh, WebDM said this. Level 20 D&D is just level one of an entirely new game. Like the scale <laughs> and the scope and the goals all change because of what you can do all the time. Mm-hmm. Like a, uh, a cleric can cast divine intervention and petition a god one time a week to interfere in your life. Like that's so interesting. There's actually a game. I haven't played it, but I have the books. It's called Godbound that follows that idea where you, a level one Godbound character is a level 20 D&D character. Ooh, and it weird. levels up from there. So, like, you're not fighting goblins at low level. You're fighting demigods and, like, Earth's heroes. <laughs> huh. Is there any uh, D&D streams or podcasts, uh, like Let's Plays, that do uh, a, a level 20 stream? Uh, I'm sure. Really... I'm sure there are. I know that um, Jim Davis on WebDM is planning on doing one very soon, and that this is recorded in um, late January 2019. Yeah, because I'm thinking of the final finale of the first season of Critical Role is really the only thing I can can think of. Because I'd be interested. Because I just started, um, or in my current campaign that just finished Dragon Heist is now just entered the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Um, they are we're planning to go to twenty. So oh. I'm. Looking for some resources to, uh, you know, for god slaying. Mm. <laughs> and the gods shall be slain. I need to mention, one of my very favorites is a game called The Last of Us. Uh, Fantastic. The idea of this is that there is a fungus called Cordyceps. It actually is a real fungus um, that essentially mind controls ants and small insects 
um, that makes them climb to a high place, and then they explode into spores that spread in, into more insects and so on. But the the premise here is that that fungus has jumped the gene barrier, I guess you would say, and now humans can be infected by it. So it's like a very, uh, dare I say, scientifically plausible zombie apocalypse. Yeah, I I love the idea of spores and poison and... They're some of my favorite uh, types of enemies, and I can't remember what they're called—the like the mushroom people. Um, oh, that that sort of thing is a really cool thing to include, especially it makes sense in a post-apocalyptic setting. Yeah, it's because uh, I, I just feel like zombies are so played out. It's fun to put twists on them to change expectations. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, oh, um, the the Walking Dead is a great example of uh, of like zombie fiction mm-hmm, yeah. um, or. Like so, post-apocalyptic um, changes. If you think like uh, post-apocalyptic, like like the road, um, there isn't like a mutated threat. There isn't like a horde of anything after you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like human versus human, and kind of digging into the deep, dark psychology of of human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it it's very nice to have a horde of enemies that you don't uh, that you don't feel bad about killing, or there's no real moral quandaries at all. We take no qualm with just slaughtering these things. And they're they're a part of nature itself. Um, and so it's really cool for a post-apocalyptic setting to introduce a horde of something um, that makes you think differently, right? Because if there's zombies everywhere, like you, you start boarding up your house, you start thinking, how am I going to get food? You start thinking about transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, it adds a bunch of questions um, that the, the players will be forced to answer that I think is really cool. And isn't unique to zombie games. It could be anything. You know, it could be all the animals are mutated so that they kill on sight. Like even a bunny rabbit will attack you or something. Well, it's like rabies, Um, right? Like rabies effectively turns any animal into a crazed, um, essentially poisonous, diseased version of itself. Like if it bites Mm -hmm. you, then you will have rabies. Mm -hmm. And they behave much like zombies. So, um, yeah, yeah, all this stuff is pretty plausible. But you're right. It's good having a central danger that is pervasive and and ever-present in your setting. And, and this can work with um, a lot of different things. This can work with um, like the whole idea of there being a horde that you have to survive through. Mm-hmm. Um, this could work with a demonic invasion. Um, this could work with an alien invasion. <clears throat> um, it's always good to have a kind of a horde of something that almost acts more as an environmental measure than like a bunch of, you know, one eighth CR enemies that are to be fought. Yeah. I think for me, one of the more interesting things is about The Walking Dead is the idea of like you getting bit and then you are eventually you're 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 it's like having cancer. Like you're you're essentially you're dead. doomed. Like yeah. you're doomed. You yeah. will die within a few days, maybe weeks where mm-hmm. that's not a threat in D&D. Like getting hurt by a monster doesn't really do anything. So I just like I'm imagining your character getting bit by a zombie that will turn you into a zombie that is yeah that, yeah, that, that is scary happening and it just it, it provides for a lot of interesting role play opportunities and uh-huh. it just changes the dynamic of the story <laughs> what if you have some magical zombies who when they bite you you can't just cure disease and and, and so the player's goal is now to become like never get hit by this yeah. enemy even like a cr8 creature just slashing you all of a sudden like well, you're gonna die <laughs> So, 
So I did this. This, this really reminds me of lycanthropy le- of like werewolves. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm starting to think of like what would a, a zombie apoc- apocalypse look like if it was a werewolf apocalypse? Oh, humanity um, would be it, so dead because werewolves oh, are yeah, way to, smarter. Yeah, but like um, I d- I did this. Um, lycanthropy works in Dungeons and Dragons. I think you have to do a con saving throw if you're bit by like a were uh tiger or something or any anything a were anything if they bite you that's when you have to uh roll to see if if you will eventually become that thing so uh you guys have met my friend dylan Mm -hmm. uh in our campaign that we played i would chase him around with a were rat (laughs) i would always introduce a were rat and would just automatically attack him Uh, this is my first campaign and he just so desperately didn't want to turn into a were rat that he would just like sprint away and i would just be like nipping at his tail (laughs) Uh, oh it's because because that is yeah one of the only things that has a threat of like that and maybe a vampire like have the things of like the possibility of permanently altering a character yeah the last world i want to talk about is maybe a little surprising for you guys um it's actually the witcher universe in the Witcher, uh, the way the world building goes is that it was just a, it was essentially Earth, just a normal, sort of a Dark Ages, maybe early medieval period game. And there was this event called the Conjunction of the Spheres, where essentially a different universe that was all of these terrifying monsters collided with our universe and monsters, like legit monsters, were introduced to the, the world. And so you see this diversion of the timeline as... Um, like all these things that we like we have folktale terms for like ghosts and ghouls and um some really weird like Czechoslovakian uh folk creatures exist in this witcher world and they're real and it's it's such an interesting take on this where things were fine and then it's not really the end of the world but it's a dramatic change in the world hmm yeah yeah, and it also fits in kind of the uh we talked about earlier some some apocalypses are almost cyclical mm mm-hmm. Um, and isn't that one like it where it like happens every so often? It's almost like planets aligning. I don't know for sure. I, uh, I'm a pretty casual Witcher fan. Now that we've talked about all these different types of apocalypses, I would like to welcome you into my apocalypse emporium. Oh, now if you follow along <laughs> at home, we're going to teach you how to build your own apocalypse one step at a time. First, we're going to pick a time period. Whether you're going ancient, medieval, modern, or anything in between. Could you do the future? Yeah, that's a good question. You surely could. Now that you've got your time period, next you're going to pick out what ruined your world. That might be war, famine, disease, nuclear missiles, magic, natural disasters, aliens, or whatever else your heart desires. Next, you're just going to think your way through what happens to your world and how it gets ruined. How does a nuclear bomb interact with medieval Europe? What about an EMP launched in a sci-fi setting? What about Star Wars if half of everyone suddenly died? It's interesting, and you can think about it all by yourself. And then we're going to figure out where we're going to set our story on the timeline. How long has it been since the war, or whatever, broke out? Once you answer that question, we'll move on to the next step, which is how well do people remember the previous civilization? Very well, not at all. Maybe it's a legend. Maybe all the stories contradict each other. Maybe nobody knows at all and they just woke up like this. Finally, blend and enjoy. You've created your own post-apocalyptic scenario. So let's talk about some different aspects of the post-apocalyptic setting. Um, 
and how the world changes after the world ends. So the first is population. Um, so you want to think how many people died. Um, and a lot of times you can still, the definition of apocalyptic is vague. Um, the Black Death, I killed, what, between 30 and 50% of people in, uh, like, Northern Europe. So th is that considered apocalyptic because it didn't wipe out 90%? Um, you know, it, it's a debatable, uh, it's a debatable uh, definition. So you want to determine how much of your population is left. You know, if something comes in and wipes out 10% of the people, that could be catastrophic, but that might not be apocalyptic. Um, yeah. So, so what do you guys think about population? Like, do you want to keep a lot left or have people just few and far between? Well, I think depending on what type of disaster you've picked to ruin your world and how close your story is set to it, you're going to have mm -hmm. more or less people. So if it is like a famine early on, you have many people, but pushing that timeline forward, obviously it just dramatically decreases. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to identify um, what is happening. For me, I like to have society be like a husk of its former self, where it's mm -hmm. like you you can tell that there aren't as there are significantly less people than there were before. And I don't I won't necessarily have a specific number like I have seventy seven point seven seven percent that have been killed. <laughs> but it will be you'll see like empty houses or apartment buildings or you know, factories that are just empty and nobody's in or using anymore. You'll have a lot of empty space going through. The head of a statue, maybe, of liberty. Yeah, oh, that okay. has been knocked off. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's a good question, Jake. Um, how would you answer that? So, yeah, I tend to, if I'm going to go post-apocalyptic, I am going to go all the way. Because there are post-apocalyptic um, uh, events that are kind of scattered through my world, but they're like... They're pretty light, you know, like a flood might eliminate this city or there was, you know, um, a massive disaster that did this or a volcano eruption that did this. Um, but if I'm going to go like post-apocalyptic setting, I'm going to kill 95% of the people. Whoa. Like it, it needs to be like um, real bad, real bad. Um, so, yeah, I tend to, to go all the way if I'm going to do a post-apocalyptic setting. Um I don't know. I want it to be different than a than a standard D and D setting. Like I want the people to be living in kind of shacks and to be surviving in different you know types of settlements than they may normally be in the, the previous world. Mm -hmm. so that brings us to like what what kind of settlements um, do you guys include in a post apocalyptic setting? Oh, I feel like there's so many qualifiers to answer this question because I'm thinking first of all, dwarves are going to be so much better off, or any race that lives underground or lives under the ocean. Yeah, they're definitely going to be at a more significant advantage because oh, they're going to be more isolated naturally. Mm -hmm. Like, what if even the the elves were safer because they were in the trees or, or something, right? Like, but the tr I feel like the elves would be the worst off because the trees would probably die in a real bad apocalypse. Well, it depends on the apocalypse, Jake. If it's disease, maybe. Oh yeah, it could be. It could be just fey wild magic that makes the trees grow too big. Too big. Uh oh, help! So, uh, what kind of so? Jake, I want you to answer the question so I can get a better idea of how I should answer it. Yeah. So um, I, I'm thinking of from, from my uh, campaign I did that I think of like settlements. They all have to have like a unique flavor to them. Mm. Um, I think for uh, when you think of the fallout 
uh, games, each of the settlements that you come across has like a unique flavor, mm-hmm. right? Like Diamond City, they're in a freaking, they're in Fenway Park. Um, you think of other ones, uh, they're like, I think the, uh, the, what's it called? The, the Brotherhood, they're in a big blimp <laughs> over the, over the, a big airship. In, yeah. uh, um, in New Vegas, there's a cheesy themed hotel with a giant T-Rex yes. called Novak yes. because the no vacancy sign burned out in a very specific way. So they just call it <laughs> yes. Novak. Yes, I like I love it. It's got to have a quirk to it. Um, I think for me, uh, in the post apocalyptic setting, they had like, um, they just built this random city out in the middle of nowhere. It looked very similar to uh, the first one you come across in Fallout 3. Uh, oh, um, Megaton. What is that? Pl- Megaton. Yes. That, that one's that one is built around an atomic warhead that hit and didn't go off, <laughs> um, which is just hilarious. I, yeah, I have a city like that um, that's built in kind of like uh, around a fallout shelter. Mm. Um, another one, uh, a big airship crashed and there were uh, two large batteries on it so it's in the middle of a terrible swamp but a city came out of it like a a small settlement came out of it because they got free power from this downed airship um so so yeah i wanted to think of like unique settlements um to fill up the post-apocalypse um but also make them pretty far apart and we'll talk about travel i think a little later the idea of having one cool thing, one unique thing about a settlement is not specific to post-apocalyptic settings. Like, you, no. you really, any setting in D&D should be like this. Um, it's just sometimes more evocative to imagine, like, oh, well, they built this city inside, um, like in... On rock and roll. <laughs> we built this city. We built this city. I was gonna say in the Force Awakens, Ray uh, lives inside a fallen ATAT walker. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's cool, just mm-hmm. turning things on their head, sometimes literally, and then living inside. I mean, you could even have a round planet. Okay, you flat Earth weirdo. <laughs> no, I like that idea though, um, especially like living inside dead things or amongst dead things. Like um, a, I th- think of like a Tarask dying hmm. um like that the bones of that thing would be around forever like i can imagine a city built inside the corpse of a yeah. long dead petrified tarasque it'd be so convenient you would never run out of materials <laughs> um i feel like mummified tarasque flesh would get a little stale stale after a while <laughs> it stink <laughs> it surely would get stale um this makes me also think about how would your magic change we saw in dark sun and in jake's setting Divine magic doesn't exist anymore. So how yeah. would you change it? Yeah. So you could make changes to how magic works where I think in Dark Sun, magic is draining to the environment mm-hmm. where if you cast spells, like things will lose life around you right. because of that. I think also in Dark Sun, even arcane magic drains the world around you. And so everyone uses these types of elemental spells. So everything has this more basic and raw uh, aesthetic I think it's very important to limit magic in some way because if you look at the spells in Dungeons and Dragons, a post-apocalyptic world literally could not exist if there were people casting those type of spells. Um, think of create food and water. Hmm. Um, think of, I mean, going all the way up, think of wish, right? <laughs> like if there are people that can use these type of spells, the post-apocalyptic event either wouldn't happen or wouldn't have as drastic of an effect um so i think especially in like a fantasy 
Dungeons and Dragons post-apocalyptic setting, there has to be some limitations to magic to make um, the world um, feel the hurt. Or maybe maybe there's some sort of like localized spell casting where you can only cast spells in certain locations because of magical essence in the area. So you're really limited on where you can cast spells or maybe you need a resource in order to cast your spells. So it's like you have to bring around like a satchel that has magical energy and you have yeah. to gather more when you run out. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Because if you allow just like, you know, think of like a level 20 life cleric in like a, the post of like throw a level 20 life cleric into uh, the road. <laughs> right. Like they, they would solve so many problems. They would like be able probably be able to restart civilization by themselves but i mean because that's that's interesting in itself because then you have like um immortan joe who has all of his followers and he controls all the water in mad max (laughs) and maybe this cleric is uh it becomes a little more evil and conniving oh yeah maybe maybe that's how some settlements form up around powerful figures Hmm. where yeah because oh yeah Oh, if you could freaking make water in a vast desert world. I mean, think about, like, that's how Mad Max, the newest movie, he controls the water and he (laughs) controls the society because of it. Whoa, is there an echo in here? Echo? What? I just said the same thing, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I was confused. (laughs) Good point, David. (laughs) No, so I think it's it's pretty important to think about magic, um, just in general. We're definitely going to have some more episodes or some uh, segments of the show that talks about the logical implications of different spells on the world oh, yes. um but it's very very apparent in post-apocalyptic settings that um some spells just solve a lot of the problems that you may be trying to create um it sounds so silly saying like as because as a dungeon master you are trying to create a world that's dangerous and and hard to live in um and so yeah some of these spells fix the problem a little too quickly so always be mindful of how magic works especially in a post-apocalyptic setting um another thing to consider is just kind of the culture of societies in in a post-apocalyptic setting um a common like david was talking about earlier like tribal cultures are going to be more common um think basically just rewind time to the ancient era and maybe city states um that sort of thing are going to be more common than uh massive sprawling empires yeah it definitely is a smaller scale when instead of going to a city now you go into what is just essentially a settlement and it's trash and there's nothing to buy i know in dark sun you can't even get metal because metal is so scarce so your weapons are made of Uh, bone and wood yeah so yeah and i think that kind of ties into the different currency systems that you can have in these types of games where different things to become more valuable what do you need what are you going to need gold for when there's no metal in your world and you're going to actually need things like iron or bronze to be able to make tools or even just wood for fuel to melt down yeah the metal yeah and i think we we have a lot of this represented in games like fallout where caps are (laughs) the new currency system but i imagine a world where you know you have black powder as the the reigning resource because you have guns that need to be filled with ammo so yeah you have gunpowder as the the reigning resource there's a video game yeah. called metro 2088 i think something like that and uh it's sort of this russian winter apocalypse which as far as i know is just modern day russia and uh <laughs> 
<laughs> every, every post-apocalyptic <laughs> is just the standard to will. Yeah. Um, but in that game, ammunition is the currency, but only like really high-quality, clean, polished ammo. So you can either fire it uh, and it and it never jams your gun, or you can spend it as money. Super interesting uh, currency. Yeah, there, there's a lot. I mean, we think about the logical implications. Um, yeah, gold might not be valid. In fact, there might be a ton of gold just laying around from the previous society, hmm. meaning that like you'd have to haul around. Like you know, inflation would be um, insane. I heard um, there's uh, one of my professors in college was like a doomsday prepper. <laughs> Um, and so he would always tell us little things that he does. He has a, a bug out bag, which like in case of like, you know, nukes falling or something bad going, you know, EMP, whatever, um, asteroid strike. He he has a uh, a backpack um, and inside of it, he, he listed off all the things. But the one thing that really surprised me is he said um, $100 in $1 bills. Hmm. Because he said if you're, a, if you're running through, maybe you're stuck on the highway and someone starts selling – burgers or is selling rations selling food uh, if he goes yeah the price is ten dollars and you pull out a hundred dollar bill do you think he's going to give change <laughs> the price of that just raised to a hundred dollars uh-huh. and so he said that's why you carry ones um or carry you know he like he said he has little gold coins and stuff um just because the value of currency and the value of anything drastically changes when the world around you changes no just imagine like a bunch of coffee like a bag of coffee when oh, if yeah. you're in America and you can't grow coffee after the bombs fall. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, like I, I heard um a really interesting kind of like shower thought somewhere that like, yeah, if you took your entire spice cabinet into the ancient era, you would be the richest person. Gosh. Because you uh because all of that, all of those spices are worth so much in that time period that like, yeah, it, like you'd be better off taking that than like gold bars or an iPhone or anything because of like the context of the time, that's more valuable than a gold bar or an iPhone. This man has salt. Get him a crown. <laughs> the salty king. Mm. <laughs> so we talked about tribes. I uh, I love the idea of having cults and weird religious things yes. pop up. Especially like the weirder the thing is that they worship, the more fun it is. So in Mad Max, they worship cars and like engines <laughs> and speed. And, uh, and just pick any, pick your favorite thing. Like it could be, um, they worship bodies of water, right? Cause it's so rare and so beautiful. Oh yeah. I, I love the idea. Cause whenever a society ends, like whenever they're like the gods destroy it or there's whatever, there's going to be people either worshiping what did this to society as like a great cleanser that was necessary or people who are worshiping its opposite in yeah. like an attempt to kind of fight back against it. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. And you can get really creative with this stuff. So it's it's always fun oh, to do yeah. cults. Yeah. So yeah, another kind of the, the last thing to consider is um, power structures are going to work a lot differently when it come, when, when suddenly you're thrown into a post-apocalyptic setting. Um, a lot of times power is built nowadays with intelligence and wealth. Um, that is kind of the, the basis of power. You know, you can have this, this kind of lower class bodybuilder. He, you wouldn't consider him more powerful than uh bill gates you know but what happens is in a post-apocalyptic setting those two are essentially thrown into a boxing ring um and it it changes like all the wealth in the world or all of like that power that all all of that wealth that mattered in the previous world might not necessarily matter in this new chaotic wasteland 
And so suddenly it goes back to, which I think is an abhorrent, terrible idea that it's kind of in our primal instincts, uh, is the idea of might is right. And it really doesn't matter who's the most moral or who's the most intelligent. All that matters is who is the strongest. Mm. And that person is in charge. Oof. And so, uh, yeah, you're going to see a lot of uh, leaders that are either like hyper charismatic villains mm-hmm. or leaders that are just hulking brute, brutish barbarians that really have no place having with a, in a leadership role. Um, but you're going to see power structures start to revolve around might is right as opposed to like, you know, other types of uh, meritocracies. Oof. Yeah, if if you want to see this in the modern times, look at Africa with these warlords who will just mm-hmm. drive around and uh, kidnap slash recruit men and uh, continue mm-hmm. growing stronger and therefore writer. Yeah. yeah. And who's going to stop them? And so you're going to see a culture or multiple cultures of uh, warlords, essentially, mm-hmm. conquering mm-hmm. and uh, subduing others. So it's mm-hmm. uh, this is one of those other uh, post po- things in post-apocalyptic fantasy that maybe you don't think about how awful it is to live under a person who could yeah. just kill you for looking at them wrong or take anything you own because they they want it, um, and not even the the highest leader, right? Like just the one of his people that is just above his you, lieutenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just if they're higher on the hierarchy, then then that's, they are. That's really right. all that matters. Yeah. Oof, oof. The last thing before we get into the question vault and close out this episode um, is a cool little uh, apocalypse, uh, post-apocalyptic generator that I found. Um, it is a website co- called chaoticshiny.com. Um, it has a bunch of random uh, random tables and generators. So let's do the first one. So the initial cause is a rodent-related cataclysm, the result of a biological experiment gone wrong, hmm. has many religious worshippers... The threats are diseased rodents, mutated humans, and giant rats. Ooh. 16% of the population survives. Oh my gosh. Jeez. <laughs> so, that, so think about that. So yeah, it's it's someone, maybe some mad wizard experimenting on, on rodents, and one he just creates one that's mutated and it spreads and, you know, typical zombie, except they're all rats. Except it's rats, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, uh, these rats are turning other people and other animals into rat-like aberrations oh so this is kind of like your this is kind of like your dylan situation oh they're (laughs) except it's whereas except you never turn back into a human you just turn into this like disgusting (laughs) permanent um, where like in the fly with jeff goldblum when he turns more into the fly like just the raddest version of that and so cronenberg like yeah and so you get people or these creatures like making nests now in your office buildings mm-hmm. and in your yeah and they're super dangerous and obviously if they bite you you're gonna, you're gonna turn die. into one of them yeah. humanity doesn't okay. stand a chance yikes oh uh so so i just did it again here is another one uh so this apocalypse the cause is an ancient evil unearthed yes causing thousands of massive firestorms hmm. uh the threats are areas of lava earthquakes cult fanatics and firestorms <laughs> um survivors 40 percent of the population wow oh so interesting i'm just imagining dwarves who dug a little too deep dug too deep <laughs> <laughs> and they dug and they they hit the they hit some sort of portal to the plane of fire oh. which is just spewing out you know this 
Oh my gosh. This chaotic so, storms of fire. So it's oh it's almost gosh. like a mega volcano. Yeah. On a yeah. scale that like it's totally unrealistic where it's like impacting within thousands of miles around the continent everyone. Yeah. Oh my gosh! That in the, in my world, the way David described it, this would almost completely eliminate the dwarves in the, the early portion of my world because they live in a massive mountain. Uh, you know, it's like all these tropes, like and they they mine all this stuff. So imagine they hitting something at the bottom, and suddenly through the mines, lava just starts flowing. It turns the whole thing into a volcano, kills ninety nine percent of the dwarves. Jeez. Like, what do the humans and elves do if they just say, "Oh, hey, that's the dwarves' home." Why is it erupting? <laughs> oh no! Like imagine, like you're traveling and you see the mountain in the distance, and all of a sudden, just like lava starts shooting out. Like as you're adventuring, oh, like that would be terrifying. And you know, they're like, yeah, there's like two million dwarves that live there. It's like, well, oh. now there's only one, and he's oh, on fire. <laughs> oh god! Wow! All right. Uh, so okay, here's another one. Uh, initial cause: biological warfare. Secondary causes, um, crazed humans and computers. <laughs> Threats, toxic water, fast zombies, and and uh, electronic collapse. Survivors, twenty one percent of the population. So this is this I am imagining is some sort of like I'm imagining some sort of hybrid like like computer virus mixed with human virus so it's like a, a oh like nanobots yeah yeah, yeah. Right. which is kind of like uh almost like a fungus that spreads to machines and it kind of shuts them down or turns them off oh that's great god yeah this is this is a actually an actual sci-fi uh idea i think it's called gray goo or like gray sludge or something yeah and it's basically self-replicating nanites that are so tiny that they're basically like like grains of sand but these things just absorb all matter and turn themselves into more nanites. And so it just like is this globule of gray nanites that just covers the earth. Oh my gosh. Until it is made as many as it can. And I think the uh the next like speculative portion is they shoot out into space and just try to find more worlds to absorb. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. This is the kind of <laughs> annihilation that I don't like. <laughs> so uh those are some uh, just some interesting, yeah. Honestly, guys, I just recommend uh, messing around with random tables. You you will be inspired in ways that you probably were not expecting. Hmm. Speaking of random tables, let's move into the question vault, <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't involve random tables at all, and it is totally specific. <laughs> <laughs> let's open that vault. Welcome to the Question Vault. Every week we answer one of your questions. You can submit your questions to voxercanapodcast at gmail.com. This week's question is from Graham, who writes, I have a quick question regarding the help action in skill check roles. As both a player and a novice DM, I have experienced the following instance quite a number of times. When one character makes an out-of-combat skill, skill check role, mostly happens with investigation or persuasion, another party member frequently jumps in and claims they take the help action to give the rolling player advantage. At first, I didn't mind when this happened, but after a while it became a bit frustrating when almost all roles seemingly had advantage. I was just hoping to hear your thoughts on the matter and whether any of you experienced this before in your games. What do you recommend, Graham? Oh, okay. This is this question's very close to me because uh, I have a mastermind rogue 
in my party going forward. And they, their main thing is they can do the help action at range. Hmm. So, so they can essentially, oh yeah, me, they can uh, basically go give it anyone advantage at any time. So yeah, I, I'd love to hear some answers to this. Well, too. first let's turn to the player's handbook and examine the help action before making any further rulings. Here it is. True. Help. You can lend your aid to another creature in the completion of a task. When you take, take the help action, the creature you aid gains advantage on the next ability check to make it perform the task you're helping with, provided that it makes the check before the start of your, your next turn. Alternatively, you can aid a friendly creature in attacking a creature within five feet of you. You feint, distract the target, or in some other way, team up to make your ally's attack more effective. If your ally attacks the target before your next turn, the first attack roll is made with advantage so let's let's just go ahead and clarify exactly how help works so help is an action that you can take in combat it's I, it's something that you can also do out of combat but specifically the way it works in combat is if you're taking the help action you're going to be sacrificing your normal action mm -hmm. to help someone else on their turn so if i was casting uh, a spell to try to you know, make sure that they, like Fireball, for example, uh, one of my allies might try to distract them and to make sure that they fail that saving throw on the cast. If I, if they were using the help action on me, because mm -hmm. that would give me that would give them advantage in in that regard. However, it sounds like you're referring to it in terms of social encounters, yeah, out of combat, combat, out yeah. of combat specifically. So. I would make the players be more descriptive of how they're actually helping. So if you're in a social encounter and you have someone with a very low charisma that's trying to also help someone who has a high charisma, they're going to have to be more descriptive in how they're helping because if they're just trying to negotiate, I wouldn't actually necessarily give them advantage because they're someone with super low charisma who's mm. making the that trying to help on that specific role i would ask them how do you help and yes. then based on the answer i would judge if it is actually helpful like if they're trying to open a door and like oh i help them of course that would help them yes but if you're trying to convince the barkeep to just let you leave without paying and the other guy says oh i help him then really i gotta role play that out so some things um and i'm working on how to iron this out some things i don't think you should allow the help action like think of picking a lock mm -hmm. How do you help someone with that without getting in their way? <laughs> is this like it doesn't is this that make scene any from uh, NCIS where they're hacking and like they put two two pairs of hands on the same <laughs> keyboard? Yeah, yeah. I'm helping you hack. All right, we're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there are some actions where I'm I'm gonna just strictly forbid it. Um, I think this is the same problem that a lot of people have when okay, you're in a an ancient dungeon and there's this this strange mural that has maybe some magic on it. Someone do an arcana check. The wizard rolls, fails. Then someone else like, can I roll? And then the next one's, can I roll? And then if they keep failing, it's like, <sighs> at some point you have to draw the line and be like, okay, only one person can roll on this. Mm -hmm. So what or I, um, what I would do yeah, go is, um, if you're concerned about someone of a lesser skill trying to help you, what you would do is, I would say one of them has advantage on the roll, but you take the average of both of your stats. So if someone has a plus five to uh, stealth and the other has a minus one, you would only give them like a plus two on their roll mm -hmm. for stealth. But they would have advantage, but it's not going to be as good because one of them, the person who is helping, 
isn't going to be as good, so they're not going to be able to help as much. Yeah. Uh, another thing I think is, I don't know, is this in the book? Um, like, you you can only help with actions that you are proficient in. Is that in the book? Like, if if you're trying to persuade someone, and the can the barbarian just come over and be like, I'd like to help. And, like, don't they have to be proficient in the same skill in order to, to do the help action? Actually, I... I'm not seeing that here under the combat section under help, but if uh, that is a very good house rule for ruling that, because if somebody's like, yes. "Oh, I'm proficient in persuasion," like, of course I'm going to come in and help you. But yeah. if you're just some yes. Joe Schmo, probably less effective. Yeah, if yes. you're, uh, yeah, I would say if you're not proficient in the skill of persuasion or you know of medicine, like you wouldn't necessarily be able to help because how are you? You're yeah. not knowledgeable in that area. You mm-hmm. don't have the experience to be yeah. able to really help them now let's say that i let's let's take another example of you know someone trying to steal an object from the store for example like uh let's say you're in a general store and someone's trying to steal you know a potion that's on a shelf and i say i want to help them by distracting the shopkeeper Mm -hmm. that is a different type of help action where yeah it would be you would almost make well i'm gonna make a charisma role for distraction and while he makes a charisma role for stealth and it's going to be two different things yes i I think it's it's really good to do that is to involve your players say what do you do and i like to punish my players so so maybe they they come in and go i'd like to help in this way and if it's uh if if it's a bad idea and they say i do this bad idea then maybe it gives them disadvantage it's like an (laughs) anti-help um and there's there's kind of that like um that risk-reward push-pull. Like if you help someone, maybe you have the risk of if you mess up really bad. Or maybe if you roll a natural one, uh, even if it's with advantage, that one overrides it. And like that's why it's risky to help someone. Hmm. Um, to balance it out, um, I think another way to really look at this is there's two different types of skill checks. There are kinds that are time-sensitive and there are kinds that are not. The time-sensitive ones are usually ones like a hostage negotiation, right? Someone has a... a, a uh, hand crossbow to to the halfling's <laughs> head, right? Um, that is not really an opportunity where you can try again. That's where I think the help action is really important because it is um, you have one shot at this. Yeah. Whereas if you're picking a lock, that is not time sensitive because you know, okay, I messed up. I'd like to try again, mm-hmm. right? And that's where the help action doesn't really make a lot of sense because instead. The other guy could just try again or they uh, they replace them and say, here, let me try this. Um, because the help action is essentially turning two rolls into one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I think it's different. If something is time sensitive, there's only one role. That's when the help action makes sense. When there's uh, not, when it's not time sensitive, just make them make separate roles. The final idea that I have for this is when you are doing an action that isn't necessarily like where you can kind of divide it up into two different things where if let's say I'm picking a a lock and I'm having someone else help me with it and they're doing something else. So whereas I'm like, you know, messing with a tumbler and they're trying to like provide leverage with a crowbar, I'd make them make a different role to see how it helps. Yes. So I would make the person who's helping provide, you know, some sort of dexterity lock, lock pick check. And if they roll high enough, then the other person would get advantage. 
So it's kind of like you're mm-hmm. you're having yes. to succeed yourself in order to help someone. Other. Yeah. So if I'm you know trying to distract someone, I have to roll high enough to actually have an effective distraction yes. to where the other person who's sneaking around can actually get the advantage for their stealth check. That's that's way better because at that point it's more of a role play mechanic instead of a gameplay mechanic. Yeah. Because you're like trying to creatively problem solve as opposed to oh can I give him advantage? Yeah, hell I do it. Yeah. You know. So I hope that helps, Graham. Yeah, I'm surprised we had so much to say on that, but yeah, that's um I feel like that's a more common problem than people think. But yeah, I hope that helps, Graham. And that's the question vault. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana episode thirty eight. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. If you like what we do with this podcast and want to support us, you can do so via Patreon. For just five bucks a month, you get a free bonus episode every month, as well as access to our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. Every little bit counts. We'll see you next time.